Can you feel in your own mind and body a sense of living in the great turning, a.k.a. our transition toward a life-sustaining way of being human on Earth? Or maybe it's easier to recognize the experience in your mind and body of business as usual, a way of being human that values being productive, consuming, succeeding, and never feeling like you've done enough or have enough. My guest today, Nisha Modi, explores with me how these different stories live in our bodies, our minds, and play out in our lives. She brings her experience as a feminist healing coach, writer, and speaker. In her work, Nisha explores the intersection of anti-oppression, intergenerational healing, and relationship. She helps people sit with their feelings, claim their agency, and relate to the world with care. In our conversation, we talk a lot about relationships to other people, to the earth, about some of the mindsets and the medicines her parents brought when they immigrated from India, about feeling like a failure and mixing up your work with your worth, and lots more. You're listening to Turning Season Podcast, your regular dose of active hope, bringing you news and deep conversations about our adventure toward a life-honoring, life-sustaining way of being human on Earth. This show is for every one of you who's awake to our multiple crises, feels your love for life on Earth, and chooses to participate in cultivating ways of life we can believe in, making a life-honoring present even in the face of an uncertain future. I'm your host, Leilani Navar. I facilitate the work that reconnects, I practice acupuncture and dream work, and I believe in the power of conversation. This podcast is one way the great turning happens through me. Welcome and thank you for being here. I have very much enjoyed getting to know Nisha over the last year and a half or so and find her writing and coaching to be such a heartening example of the great turning taking place within someone in their own unique way. One thing I especially appreciate is the way she brings her connection with the earth to her work and supports clients in connecting with the earth, even though she doesn't present her work as being particularly about ecology or nature or earth connection. Of course, I celebrate each and every one of us who does describe our work that way, but I also am so excited to see this sense of interconnection with the web of life and reciprocity with the rest of the living earth embedded and woven into all kinds of work and ways of life. In one of Nisha's former careers, she was a librarian, so she has great book recommendations. You can find the books she mentions in our conversation and others she recommends in the show notes, along with links to Nisha's website and Instagram at turningseason.com episode 27. In the conversation you're about to hear, we don't explain what Joanna Macy called the three stories of our time, but we refer to them and even talk about how Nisha's take on healing as a love story relates to those. So I'll describe them briefly for you here. The three stories are different ways a person might describe what's going on in the world right now. One is business as usual, which I mentioned right at the beginning of this episode. This includes the current mainstream industrial and financial systems and the mindsets that uphold them, and even includes a lot of so-called green technologies and businesses. The second story is the great unraveling, which is where we see that everything is falling apart right now. Ecosystems, economies, social structures, the lives of whole communities of people. And the third story is the great turning, that we're in a time of transition toward a life-sustaining human society not without great peril and heartbreak, but still on a journey in that direction, as people step up to protect life, co-create life-honoring systems and structures, and shift our consciousness into perspectives that can uphold these more life-honoring ways. So you can have those stories in mind when you hear us mention business as usual, the great unraveling, and the great turning. If you're listening to this episode close to the date it comes out on the full moon of January 2023, you still have time to sign up for a free online workshop I'm hosting on Tuesday, January 10th, called Keep It Moving, Practical Wisdom from Chinese Medicine and Deep Ecology on Your Emotions, Your Health, 
and the state of our world. You can come to turningseason.com moving to sign up to attend live or get access to the recording. There are countless personal and community reasons for stress, and most of us have heard that stress causes disease. Chinese medicine teaches us that about half of our diseases trace back to how we relate to our emotions. In the workshop, I want to share with you a Chinese medicine-inspired way of looking at stress and stress relief that might be new to you, explain how different emotions affect the body differently, and how our physical health also affects our emotions. Plus, I'll teach you a couple of practical techniques from self-acupressure massage and qigong for moving the stagnation caused by emotional stress. We'll also do a little bit of the work that reconnects and explore how Joanna Macy and a deep ecology perspective teach us how our emotions about what's happening in the world can help us serve and make change. How our human emotions might be a crucial way that life on Earth sustains itself. I'm really looking forward to this hour. We'll be exploring some of my favorite things to explore and getting into some practical resources for meeting these times with active hope and feeling well. Again, this will be on January 10th or the morning of January 11th for all my listeners in Australia and those nearby time zones. You can sign up at turningseason.com moving to attend live or have access to the recording. All right, on to my conversation with Nisha Modi. Welcome, Nisha. Thank you so much for coming to talk with me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited for this conversation. I can't wait to hear all the things you're going to say. I always feel like I could talk to you for hours. So <laughs> let's start with these open sentences from the work that reconnects. How would you finish this sentence? Some things I love about being alive on earth are... So some things I love about being alive on Earth are watching other people be alive, watching them in their element, I guess, um, whether that's something silly that they're doing or something beautiful that they're doing, which is sometimes also silly. Um, <laughs> just seeing that aliveness in other people um, reminds me that I'm alive and that we all have different facets um, to ourselves and unique qualities, yet we are we are all human, you know? Um, I love laughing with people I love. That's something that, I don't know, I often remember so many moments of laughter. Um, feeling the sun on my face um, and on my hair. I have black hair, so that heat, I used to like hate it. And sometimes I still do because it's like, oh my God, my head's so hot. But now I'm just <laughs> like, wow. I'm like, wow, because my hair is black. It soaks it in. And I think that's so, so cool to just feel the connection of the earth to my body. Um, and I love watching birds and bees connect with flowers. I think it's just such a beautiful thing for the flower to just be there and be open to, you know, offer and receive too. Um, and I would say, um, the last thing I can think of is that just how we can make so much meaning on this earth through stories and relationships um, I think it's it's so cool how meaning-making can happen and how embodied it can be and how connected it can be to the land. Wow, I love all of those. I have a huge smile on my face. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Beautiful. And how would you finish this one? When I look around at what's happening in the world, what breaks my heart is... Um, what breaks my heart is how, at least for myself, and I feel like generally in traditional education systems, we aren't like really formally taught about how we're so connected to the earth. And, you know, as I'm looking at future generations and my friends, like I, I don't have children, but my friends having kids, I'm, I often think like, I hope they somehow really, when they're young, foster that love of the earth and the connection. Cause I didn't really have that growing up. And you know, um, it actually wasn't something personally that I felt a connection to until I moved to California. I was born and raised in the Chicagoland area. And, you know, it's not that I didn't care about the earth or what was around me. I just didn't have an interest in it. I was just so in, you know, business as usual, <laughs> you know, like I got to go to school. I got to do this thing and whatever. Like I liked being out and stuff. And of course, you know, there's those Chicago winters that are rough, but 
I, I wish I appreciated the change of seasons. I, I wish I appreciated that stuff more. But now that I came to California, ironically, <laughs> I appreciate it more, even though the seasons are like less changeable here, I guess. But I have so much more appreciation for like the ecology here and the flora and fauna. And it makes me want to actually go back to Chicago and reconnect with what is there because that is what, you know, raised me as well, even though I wasn't fully aware of it. So it does break my heart that we're not formally taught, at least in school, like just how connected we are. I I know we're we're taught generally like, okay, this is, you know, how soil works and this is metamorphosis, but it just feels so separate. Um, and I would say the other thing that breaks my heart is that there's such a transactional and extractive relationship that we have with the hurt, the earth as a result of, you know, industrialization, globalization, capitalism, et cetera. Um, and instead of it being actually a relationship, like a right relationship or being relational, whether it's relationships with the land or earth's creatures or with other human beings, I mean, we are part of the earth, right? So just seeing it, experiencing it as more transactional or extractive as opposed to relational is something that, you know, breaks my heart as well. Yeah, I'm with you. How did you transition to see things more in this way from the business as usual childhood and maybe early adult years? What what led you to even notice that we were having more this transactional extractive relationship and maybe even beyond that, that there was the potential to have a loving, wonder-filled relationship? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's really interesting. Um, I feel like in a way it's been my whole life, not so much maybe with the land itself, but I, I've always felt like I was a very relational person. Like I had, I've always had lots of friends and I've always like really adored those relationships. Um, for those astrology people out there, I have Libra and five planets. <laughs> so <laughs> that relationship stuff is, it's almost like in my body, right? Mm. And at the same time, I was, it was business as usual. I was also very academically oriented. I felt like the only thing I was good at was school. So it was like get A's, be number one. You know, if I didn't do well on a test or something like that, like I felt like a huge failure. Yet at the same time, um, I like to tell the story of how when I was, I think in first grade, my parent, my mom told me this later, I don't remember this, but that I guess the teachers approached my parents saying that, oh, Nisha's doing really well. We think that it would be good for her to skip a grade. And my mom said that when they asked me, which I do appreciate that they asked me because uh -huh. um, they could have just put me there, you know, um, that I said, no, I want to stay with my friends. Mm. And I'm almost like teary thinking of that, that that's the little Nisha that even though I loved school at that time, I loved my friends more, you know? Yeah. And it's just that such an interesting like juxtaposition or both and, you know, that I think I was very much like business as usual because that's what, you know, conditioning told me to do. And also I I felt valued when I did well, like mm -hmm. when I when I aligned with the meritocracy. Um, I felt worthy. Um yet at the same time, my body still knew that relationships were so important. Um, so yeah, I think it was always a part of me. I was always so interested, especially um, in high school. I remember being so obsessed with like, how can we find happiness? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Like I did this project on it and I thought I wanted to major in philosophy in college and all this stuff, like the way we think really fascinated me. Um, so it was always there, like personal development stuff was always there. I would say that a shift happened probably after college um, when, you know, I started entering the world. My first job was with like an IT consulting firm. Um, and, you know, I thought that's what I was supposed to do and I wanted to excel in it, but it really wasn't. And I realized that I wanted to help people. And I thought about getting a job in a nonprofit. And I've had like five careers. I won't go into each of them, but um, I think I realized that connecting with others and again, being relational was more important to me than making profit for a company. Mm -hmm. um, and things really came to a head for me personally when my father died um, almost 10 years ago, exactly. And um, also my, I asked for a separation from my ex-husband like less than a year later. So that was like my great unraveling <laughs> where uh -huh. I started to 
wonder how I got here. Like, how did I get into a marriage that was abusive, that was um, a place where I was very codependent? Um, and also, like, I've lost, I lost two of the biggest masculine figures in my life, essentially, right? That really put me on this, my own personal healing journey. And I think the healing journey connected with the earth once I moved to California, as I mentioned earlier, just seeing how much the earth heals us and supports us and always has and how we can be in relationship to it. Like I'm always, I'm, I'm the kind of person where I'm like, ask for help from other people, but I'm also like, ask for help from that tree. See what mm -hmm. the tree has to say to you. Um, see how the earth is, is always healing us. You know, um, I still think of like remedies. Um, you know, I, I'm South Asian. My parents immigrated from India you know, remedies that my parents gave my brother and me when we were young, you know, that were like with turmeric and um, eucalyptus and stuff like that, that were in some modern medicines, but not in a lot of them. And seeing how those parts of the earth were, you know, came with them. Um, I didn't appreciate it as much, though. I realize now how my like for us to order out or, you know, get something from outside, like even like Taco Bell, it was like a treat, you know. And um, but my mom made food homemade almost every day. And I'm like in awe and wonder of someone who she worked full time and will get up at five o'clock in the morning and put the pressure cooker on with the, the moon doll and like all this stuff. And it's like she gave me the earth my whole life. Mm. And I only now have, you know, last few years have a deep, such a deep appreciation for for that and for how um, I was truly fed. And she did it with so much love and you know, she made sure that like, okay, you have your protein and then you have your veggie. Like she had a formula, you know? <laughs> uh -huh. So, um, so yeah, I think it's like all just kind of come together, you know, that, yeah. that relationality was always there and it's all just kind of come together. I would say definitely in the last five to 10 years. I love hearing the way it, it does weave together for you and that you trace it back to your love of your friends and your valuing of relationships as a young child. Because I, I think that what you said when, when I asked, you know, what breaks your heart and you talked about not being taught about how connected we are, I think that we all naturally are relational to one degree or another. Some people, you know, love interaction and socializing more than others, but we're all relational. And if we grow up in a way where we understand that we are so interconnected with the rest of the living world, that relationality naturally extends to the trees and the foods and the medicines and everything that comes to us from a more than human place. But because most of us, myself included, were raised in this more industrial growth society, business as usual kind of way where we just weren't taught that, our naturally open hearts and relationality doesn't go in that direction until we sort of rediscover it. And so hearing you talk about how looking back, you can see all these ways that, of course, we're all made from the earth all the time, whether we know it or not, right? Mm -hmm. We're all eating is the most intimate thing we could possibly do in a lot of ways. Um, and yeah, that it's, I know that your work so much is with people, you know, working with very much the human dimension of life on earth. Um, but that that for you, I hear it extending. It's not like a separate idea that we would also be connected to the earth. It's all an extension of this relationality, the way that you're talking about it. Yeah, definitely. It definitely is an extension. And I think the embodiment of that is like the last few years has really come into play where it's not, you know, I don't even like to say the word nature anymore because it feels separate. Mm -hmm. I just like to say the earth because it's like, because I am the earth and we are the earth and even that idea that we are the earth kind of blew my mind. It's like, yeah, of course we are. Like mm -hmm. we, we come from the earth just like a snail does, you know? Um, and yeah, I, I also love how there's that weaving together. And um, yeah, it's really, really cool. So since we are the earth and everything <laughs> is emerging from this one interconnected being of matter and energy changing form, right? This very harmful system that we find ourselves embedded in, um, this extractive system, this capitalist system also arose out of the earth via humans. And I have read 
some different times you've mentioned in your writing capitalism, for example, as something that we can find in ourselves. We can find it in our bodies and in the way we think and the way we talk to ourselves, maybe the way we push ourselves. And I would love to hear you speak to that. I have a feeling there are many listeners who've never quite thought about it that way, but will recognize what you talk about there. Is there anything you can share about that? Yeah, definitely. So I really find that in the ways we respond in relationships. Um, I have really worked so much to heal my mother wound and my relationship with my mom is so much, so much better and so much more beautiful and relational, even though we don't always agree. It used to be that when we didn't agree, agree I just like was done with her, right? But now it kind of makes me laugh or I just move on. And um, so much of, of that relationship, um, and I talk about it a lot because I think it's just so central in my life and really was like the impetus of so much of my healing. You know, I think about how my mom was actually born the year of the partition in India, mm. um, you know, when British colonization, quote unquote, ended, I guess, <laughs> there. But the remnants of it stayed. And that was, you know, very capitalistic and extractive um, of the resources of South Asia, you know, not just India. And, you know, I feel like it's such a representation, her being born that year, of this intersection of colonization and liberation. And um, one thing that um, I learned from my mom, for better or worse, was feeling of enoughness. Even to this day, if I'm talking to my mom on the phone, it will close with her saying, well, what else? What else is there that we have to talk about? And it's just this idea of scarcity that I feel is so embedded in her being and that something's not enough. We're not talking about enough things. We need to do more. Um, and I feel like that is very much something that comes from colonization and capitalism where we have to be more productive. We don't want to forget things because it's not perfect enough. Um, all these characteristics of capitalism and white supremacy, too, that I mean, all of it's kind of like a, you know, one big bag together um, where, you know, I start feeling not enough or like I feel like I have to answer or owe her an explanation if I don't have enough for her. Um, and that's something I've really had to um, pay attention to, how that feels in my body. How does scarcity feel in my body? Um, because I don't actually think the opposite of scarcity is abundance, um, because I think that if we are in scarcity, we're it's never going to be abundant <laughs> or I don't know if opposite is the right word, but like I actually feel like when I think of enough, me being enough or having enough or doing enough, abundance is just there for me. So um, I feel like that itself is something that, you know, defies capitalism. The fact that I have enough, you know, that I don't need to get that other thing on Amazon or um, whether it is something that's like a product or it's just a feeling that I am enough, like that my body even though I'm not like a perfect model, you know, like a, a standard size two, whatever you want to call model, it's enough. You know, it's, do it's done so much for me. Um, so now what can I do with it? What can I decide? Um, and I think there are also, I talk a lot about the nervous system in my work, and that reminds me of the feeling of hypervigilance, where it's like you're always on the lookout for danger because you need to watch out and you need to do more and you need to really be careful. And it's so disembodied. So in a way, I feel like capitalism in our body feels like hypervigilance, but it also feels like an actual disembodiment, a disconnection from our body, more thinking about what's in our head, which bypasses our feelings, bypasses um, the sensations in our body. Um, and I think the mind is very important, yet it, it often doesn't allow us to complete our stress cycle responses, our feel the emotions, um, feel the rest that we might need. Whenever I do embodiment practices, I yawn so much. And that is my body telling me like, this needs to be released, you know, or you need to rest. You have been in hypervigilance for so long, which to me also feels like my, my shoulders creeping up to my ears. You know, I have a lot of neck tension. So I feel like this is how it shows up in our body and the stories we tell ourselves as well as the sensations that map to those stories as well. This is profound what you're talking about, this this idea of enoughness and how we're in a, a loop, I, I want to say, but it's maybe also just a soup of like, I am not enough and I do not have enough. 
and maybe there isn't enough, not only do I need to always go be more and get better and have more, but there's not enough to go around. So I better be better than someone else so I can get some of the limited amount um, and how that shows up in the way we hold our bodies and think about ourselves. So one of the pieces that I am seeing here is that capitalism as a system is based on always growing, right? That's one of the flaws is that there always has to be more. And it's it's built on the idea that there is no uh, enough point, um, a point where we can stop making it more and just kind of cycle as it is, right? And you mentioned your natural ability to excel in school and how being appreciated and succeeding is a great feeling, right? So we want to do more of those things. And you used the word meritocracy. And I've also seen you writing about disability justice. And just now you also mentioned rest. So there's something in here too about productivity and worth. I know you recently ran a program called From Work to Worth about how we conflate our work, our ability to work, the quality of our work with our worthiness uh, rather than our worthiness standing on its own, or I'm not sure exactly how you would put it, but I'd like to to dig into that a little bit and pull on those threads of worthiness and needing to to be productive and successful to feel worthy in the system that we have right now. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I started, I, I launched the program because um, of my own struggle with it. You know, I needed it. <laughs> um, and for me, it very much looked like the meritocracy, um, you know, feeling like I wasn't enough if I didn't get perfectly straight A's. And, you know, this kind of came to a head when I went to a really good school and I didn't do that great in my first semester. I was in a school now where everyone around me was really smart. It wasn't just me who did well in school. Everyone got straight A's. And um, I found myself my first quarter being like getting had having a couple C's and my dad threatening to send me to community college, which was like at that point in my life, like the worst like punishment, which now I think community colleges are absolutely beautiful and incredible. But at that time, because of meritocracy and because of, you know, how I valued myself so much, that was really scary for me. Um, but in a way now I kind of see it as a blessing, as a way for me to ground myself as like, well, what else is there to Nisha? And that's been a journey for me that continues today. Mm -hmm. And um, I feel like so much of this stuff like grades and um, getting this job or getting a nice house and having, you know, you know, a nice car with all these things, you know, I think it's great to have these things so we can survive and thrive. And it being a mark of our success, I think is so problematic. One, because there's clearly people that are systemically denied opportunity and um, are systemically pushed out of systems in, in white supremacy, um, in, in ableistic systems. So going back to disability, um, you know, it being something where if someone doesn't have capacity to do something, they're not seen as worthy. And one of the main tenets of from work to worth, or I just think generally about worth, is that we often conflate capacity with our worth. So if I can get the straight A's and um, get the job at, you know, my, I remember when I was in college, I was like, oh, I would love to be at McKinsey. It was like this really high-end consulting firm. Um, or get that job. That means that I am so worthy, where maybe my capacity and my role in this world isn't even for consulting, but I am still worthy. Or maybe I... Um, cannot work 80 hours a week. I mean, I don't know if any of us really should, but, you know, like, and that's what they did, you know, in those companies. And so that may, means that like, oh, I can like, you know, hustle and grind and still do well. Whereas people with disabilities or just human beings in general, like are not like designed for that. Like our bodies cannot withstand that much. And we're actually bypassing our body signal, which leads to burnout and major health problems um, if we do. So um, really conflating our capacity with our worth is ableistic because people, folks with disabilities have taught us that they are just as worthy <laughs> as any of us. And just because they can't, you know, do what um, able-bodied people can do does not mean they're less worthy. So it is almost just a naturally something that um, forgets disabled folks when we conflate our capacity 
with our worth and capacity, like I said, connected to merit, it's like being the best, being number one. And this directly relates to things like race and gender and class as well. So um, all of this kind of once again came together for me, you know, when I was thinking about work and worth and productivity um, and always trying to do, and this goes back to that hypervigilance, right? I have to keep doing, doing more. But when I really slowed down and allowed my body to speak to me, it said rest, you know, and how rest actually was so rejuvenating for me and regenerative. I think there's a difference from what you had mentioned about capitalistic growth and being regenerative, you know, because capitalistic growth is based on like profit and revenue and beating out the competition and increasing the Dow Jones, you know, like stock market. Um, whereas how are we being regenerative and actually collaborating and thinking about reciprocity with each other and with the land? Is that being something that's regenerative that doesn't have like a number on it, but it has like quality of life is just it's just beautiful. I just, when I'm saying it, I'm just like imagining like a field of flowers blooming or an apple tree, you know, fruiting or something like that. Like the value of that is not something that I think we can measure. Yeah. I was, I was thinking about a related thing too, about that difference between constant growth that comes from extraction and needing to consume and produce more and the kind of life-giving, what you're calling regenerative and also mm-hmm. just blossoming and and there's a way that we can, like, even that an ecosystem can start nurturing more and more and more kinds of life under certain circumstances. And it's a type of growth, but it's a it's a life-affirming, life-sustaining kind of growth, not an extractive mm-hmm. kind that destroys something in order to grow uh, something else. And I think about that there's a there's also a life-giving way that we can have that desire for more. I'm curious if you relate to this because in my body it feels very different when I think the feeling of I haven't done enough. Like one thing I have to say to myself often at night is I've done enough for today. Mm-hmm. I've done enough for today. Like when my mind wants to keep looping and planning for tomorrow and thinking about what I didn't achieve is like that's enough for today <laughs> and just let it let it lie, right? That feels really different in my body than the kind of desire that is like, oh, I want to experience that wonderful thing. I want to kiss my husband. This mm-hmm. desire that is in favor of life, in favor of life thriving, and that the wanting of more in those ways doesn't feel pathological. It feels full of vitality to me. Yeah, it's being with the like, like it's like it's life force in action, right? As opposed yeah. to. Ex- that extraction or like I need to I didn't do enough which means I'm for me to do more I would probably bypass the life force actually and right ignore it right so yeah being with life I think like kind of what I said earlier like watching other people be alive you know is kind of one of those things where it's like seeing someone hug someone or laugh together you know that doesn't have anything that's extractive it is actually being with life just like you said so yeah definitely yeah, and the I wanted to come back to what you said too about bypassing the signals from the body, right? Because I think when we we actually have to extract from ourselves in an unsustainable way to participate and succeed in a lot of the business as usual measures of success. Like for you to work for McKinsey and 80 hours a week physically would I'm fairly sure it would be unsustainable for your body, right? And and there's, you know, a lot of students um, that I know now in college who are pushing themselves way beyond capacity in order to take on a role in a system that is pushing the web of life on earth way beyond capacity and how embedded that is. Like you said, we are the earth. We're treating ourselves in the same way as the greater system. So to break free of that and to find worthiness this is why i feel it's so profound what you're talking about to find the worthiness in the aliveness the intrinsic value of a river or a healthy little creek full of fish and insects not because of what it can do and make and produce for us going back to ability and capacity not because of its capacity to do something for us but because of its just inherent worth and at the same time, what it can do for us just in that, just in us being there and with presence for the delight of the beauty of that. 
And yeah, so to come back to the practical and the kind of coaching work you do and the educating work you do, what is it like to unravel that in our bodies and and orient toward a different sort of baseline? Yeah. Um, one thing I really like to do is meet people where they're at. So if where they're at is I need to get this job that makes this much money or, you know, I'm going to not feel like a success in my life, then let's meet you where you're at and think about where those stories come from. What is your actual need? Because I mean, there's also real material needs we have like to live, right? And that's very valid. Um, and also, how is the desperation to meet that goal potentially not honoring the pace that what your, what your body can move? And what does it feel like in your body when you are saying, you know, I need this or I, I need to do that or I'm not good enough if I don't have that? Um, what feeling are you actually seeking as opposed to obtaining that goal? Um, I often think about how what we want isn't what we always need. And um, not that it's bad to want things. I don't really think of things as good or bad, really. But more so, like, what are the stories behind our desires? Um, is it that it just is something like you were saying, like that is just intrinsic value that like is really aligned with the life force and um, not extractive? Or is this something where you're going to start extracting from yourself in order to obtain that goal or reach that goal? Um, and what are the stories also that were painted for you, you know, growing up? And how is that maybe directly connected to any trauma that you experienced? Um, you know, because that can be something that's individual trauma that folks have. Um, you know, what are your nervous system responses? Um, what does like that I need to do more feel like in your body? So I try to really get an idea because it could feel different for people. You know, not everyone has the same responses. We are differentiated human beings. Um, and yet there are so many similarities with how all of these systems are conditioning us to become dis disembodied. And what does it even feel like to be disembodied? You know, <laughs> like what does it feel like to not feel our bodies um, versus what happens when we do certain strategies? I'll try to do different somatic work or um you know, I'll, I really like journaling. That's a huge practice that I have because I feel like that's something that connects your mind to your body through words and through language. It's a beautiful bridge, I think, to get to that embodiment, um, to get more out of ourselves that has been buried, you know, or that has not been answered. So I really like asking different questions to, to you know, to get that. And one thing I always start with my coaching sessions is I always ask, how have you been sweet to yourself lately? And whenever I say that, people are like, oh, you know, mm -hmm. after a few sessions with me, they they like, no, like, OK, this is coming. But um, just taking that moment to be like, how have I been sweet to myself lately? Have I or maybe I was and I didn't notice, you know, maybe I did this nice thing and now I can pause and really reflect on it. Um, so noticing, um, you know. Yes, we can bypass so much spiritually and bypass so much um, of our body and bypass so much because of capitalism and um, because of colonization, et cetera. Um, but I was actually talking to my, my one of my coaching friends, Kiran Bhatti, and she said something really extraordinary when we were talk when we were talking about this bypassing because we can also bypass our joy. And what joy do we actually have? Like, how have we been sweet to ourselves? How have we celebrated ourselves? So that's something that I really like to ask to kind of shift the conversation right from mm -hmm. the get-go, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, let's let's be here, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's radical, too. I mean, it's delightful and, and, and life-giving in and of itself and, again, in a system that wants us to feel like there's not enough and even that in seeking coaching there's something to fix mm -hmm. to start with what's already not just enough but sweet yeah it's it is radical to do that yeah mm -hmm. just to see ourselves as humans who fail and make mistakes and celebrate 
and love. Like it's all mm-hmm. part of one picture, not that's the good stuff and this is the bad stuff. It's all in there. And being present with all of it and befriending all of it, I think can be so, so radical. Not seeing it on that binary can be so, so radical. Mm. So befriending and even falling in love, you have mm. this You have this uh, new blog called Your yes. Healing Story is a Love Story, which I adore. Yeah. So I want to open wide up to just hear you talk about that. What is what does that mean? Your healing story is a love story. And and how how did you come to that idea? Yeah, yeah. So yes, I started this blog um very recently called Your Healing Story is a Love Story. And I really felt so compelled by this idea because I think oftentimes we think of our healing as, I mean, healing is hard, right? It doesn't always feel good. It's not cute. Like it can look really, really messy and we feel like a mess and we can feel very broken, even though we're not broken, we don't need to be fixed. Um, and yet it can feel that way, understandably. Um, so this blog really seeks to answer or, or maybe not answer, but explore the question of what if your wounds, your joy and all your healing feelings are part of a massive epic love story. So I proposed that question for my blog and, um, this really came from my healing story. Um, and I started my healing story, first of all, as a writer. I write memoir and essays. And um, that's what really got me to start digging into, like, what happened to me? How did I get into this abusive relationship? Um, what what are the ways that I, um, you know, leave my body, leave myself, leave who I am for the sake of what other people want from me or for me? So, um, and even though that doesn't always feels good, feel good, how is that part of an actual love story? So I th- often think, like I said, I'll go back to my mom where I felt very gaslit and controlled as a child, but it also makes me think about how I still sought her approval and how me seeking her approval was also me deeply knowing that I was worthy and deserved that love. It's just love that maybe was denied in the way that I wanted to receive it. So that is part of my love story. That is part of my love story, not just romantic, obviously, but more like love of humanity, love of myself, love of the vessel that I'm in. Um, And also how the ways that our body protects us, going back to the nervous system um, and those, what I was talking about, hypervigilance or fawning, people pleasing, these behaviors I did so that I could belong. Um, in the book, The Politics of Trauma, Stacey K. Haynes talks about three human needs being safety, dignity, and belonging. And I really like the idea of belonging being something because one, it's something that's very relational. And at the same time, sometimes belonging comes at a cost of ourselves, especially when we're young and we don't have the resources. Like I couldn't like leave my house, right? Like and survive. So um, that's part of our love story too, even if, you know, belonging came meant that we deny parts of ourselves, especially if maybe, um, you know, I myself, I'm a, a cisgender heterosexual woman, um, but there's people out there that identify as transgender or non-binary or um, disabled or neurodivergent. And um, that's something that they may have had to mask just in order to belong, um, just in order to feel like they could be a part of and they could be loved. So even though that love story was something that um, may have caused them to hurt, that's how they felt like they could receive love, right? So that's what I mean when I say your healing story is a love story, looking at your wounds, looking at your joys, looking at all the stuff that comes up and all the stuff that we push down to see how it is part of, you know, I mean, as cliche as it sounds, like us being like us being beings of love, (laughs) So Mm -hmm. that's really what this comes out of. And I start, I really go through this through the lens of my own story. I just, um, it'll be published soon, a connection I made to um, my father's 10-year death anniversary, me realizing, even though I knew this, it's just like, you know, things just connect sometimes differently later on, realizing that that's also when my marriage started really unraveling. And um, me seeing how in, in a very hard part of my life, I didn't feel supported, you know, by my partner. And it being like, you know, when you're when things really get bad, you start seeing like who and what is supporting you. And 
I felt like I just I didn't have a choice but to be honest with myself at that point. You know, maybe it was over time or maybe it's just this horrible event, et cetera. But um, that unraveling, I also think, is part of my love story because that ending with my dad dying, the ending with asking my husband for separation really was the beginning of so many beautiful things that came into my life. It was an opening. It was a portal. And I think that's something that can often come from darkness, um, seeking that, seeing that like, wait, you know, I often, people say them always often that I was really brave to leave my husband. Um, and, and I often say that I was, I went from being too scared to leave to being too scared to stay <laughs> and being too scared to stay was really that I need to fight for my own self and my own humanity and the love that I have for myself that I have been denying. Um, it's been denied by others. And I have also now at this point as an adult, you know, who has resources, who has choices, um, and not everyone does, you know, I, I have, you know, education, um, I have a lot of resources that a lot of even adults don't have. And I do think that oftentimes we have more choices than we could think. So but it takes a lot of awareness to be like, okay, I can, I can do this thing, I can make this choice, it just is really hard. So now that I can make this choice, how can I, you know, pour love back into me? Um, or I mean, the love is there, but how can I rediscover it and like pour back into myself generally? It's so beautiful, Nisha. I really appreciate how by painting that big, you know, canvas, like the whole thing on this canvas of a story of love. And it's it's not unlike what we were saying earlier about when something is coming from and aligned with the life force, how you're saying all of these things came from and through love in some way. The seeking of belonging, even if it involved hiding parts of ourselves or people pleasing, that, that that came from love and the desire for love and the, you know, the, the a compass almost is how I'm seeing it towards love. Yeah. One thing I also want to add that I try to talk about in the blog is that I'm not equating abuse with love. And I want to always have that caveat, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it's more like what are the results of that? And like, how did I respond to it? It's more about the response to it, not the abuse itself. So I do want to add that here, too, because I want to make sure that, um, you know, that message is clear. Yeah. Yeah. I I think one of the reasons I also love this uh, name of the blog and the whole concept is how Joanna Macy has talked about the three stories of our time and that there's a lot of power in choosing the story that we're telling. There's a lot of power in choosing how we conceive of what's happening overall right now. And the idea of the great turning as a shift to a life-sustaining society, she's called it an adventure story. And any great mm -hmm. adventure story has a lot of horrible things happen in it. Like the great turning is not just a, a pretty story of like, everybody coming together and discovering how to grow food and be nice and <laughs> take care of each other. <laughs> like it's, um, it's got a lot of um, horror and pain and grief and loss and violence and despair and uncertainty because also every great adventure story has that uncertainty. We don't know how it's going to turn out. We really don't know if we're going to make it or not make it. And Joanna has said, it's on that knife edge of uncertainty that we actually come alive and bring our best mm. to what we're facing, to the times that we're meeting. So for me, that that makes complete sense that this my healing story as a love story doesn't mean everything I've gone through has been the embodiment of love and certainly not the embodiment of loving kindness, but that the whole arc of my story is toward love as the whole arc of our human story right now could be toward turning toward a life-sustaining, life-honoring way of being together, which is a love story too. It is. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing about that adventure story because that just gave me chills. Like, yeah, there are so many twists and turns. And even, you know, on a very like a romance novel or a rom-com, there is conflict, right? Like, yeah. so on a very like Hollywood, you know, level, there is conflict. It's always going to be there. And that's what makes it so special. Um, and not to romanticize um, trauma or conflict, but it is there. It will be there. Right. So, yeah, I really love seeing that. Um, and I think finding the love in it can be so regenerative 
for us too. Um, I think it's so easy to find blame. And I've spent a lot of time in blame. And I think I needed to. That was part of my love story to blame. I blamed my mom. I blamed, you know, a lot of people and systems and stuff. And those are there. And now where's the love? Like, how can I now choose differently? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm excited to link to your blog and lots of your writing. And I'm excited that there's more of it coming. Before we wrap up, though, is there anything you want to share by audio with our listeners? Anything else on your mind? Um, you know, you introduced me to The Great Turning. And I just want to share gratitude, um, even with, you know, the three stories. Um, even though these are three stories I've totally thought of, just discerning them, I think, is like super powerful. And just seeing how, just like you said, how it is all a love story, just just reifies that for me. And it makes my heart feel so full. Um, so yeah, nothing else is on my mind. Um, uh, follow me on my social, sign up for my newsletter, do all those things. I'd love to hear from anyone who who connects or um, resonates with, with what I do, because I just, like, like I said, I'm so relational and I just love talking to people about this stuff and being invited to beautiful spaces like this that you've created, Leilani, to be able to express it as well. Thank you so much. I will have links to make it really easy for people to connect with you. Nisha is a wonderful person to be connected with, everyone. So come to the show notes and check those out. And our conversation is for sure to be continued. Thank you again, Nisha. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for listening. Come to the show notes at turningseason.com slash episode 27 for links to Nisha's website and Instagram, where she is Healing Hype Girl, and her book recommendations. If you feel like it could be good for you to attend or get the recording of my free workshop next week, Keep It Moving, Practical Wisdom from Chinese Medicine and Deep Ecology about your emotions, your health, and the state of our world, come to turningseason.com slash moving to sign up. If you're hearing this after January 10th, 2023, you can still come to turningseason.com slash moving to see what's available now. I'll be back with a new episode on the new moon. Until then, thank you again for listening and for all the ways you play your part.